Let us pray. Our God and Father, without that trust in our beloved Saviour, who is the one mediator, we could never say, let us pray. For it would be vain, and our words would no, would rise no higher than the roof. But because of his intercession for us, and the wonderful redemptive work that he has accomplished, Although we are weak and lowly, and thou art infinite and beyond our conception, we believe that when we pray, in his name, we are heard. And if we are heard, we are very conscious that the answer will always be a right one. We should not always have our wishes fulfilled, but our very best interests always will be at stake. We believe that the very expression on our lips and in our hearts of the one word Father of itself is a complete prayer. But if thou dost fill out the meaning of that word even in our small conceptions of it what a provision what a protection what loving care leading guidance there is in that one expression that we by thy mercy can look up to thee and say, Abba, my Father. We pray thee that thou wilt help us again this evening with the open book in front of us, that we may have our hearts touched and our minds directed, and thy word enter that gives light and gives understanding to the simple. Above all things else we pray thee that he who bears the name, the word, not only written, but the word living, may find a central place both in our witness, in our walk and in all our ways. We remember in our prayers those not so blessed, laid aside in sickness, some in desperate need, forgotten sometimes by us, but never forgotten by thee. And we ask thee that thou wilt help them and help us in all our ways to acknowledge thee, leaving results in thy good hands. Hear us in these things and the unspoken petitions of our many hearts because we offer them confidently in the name of Christ, our Saviour, our Redeemer and our Head. Amen. We read together this evening the first 17 verses of the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. This is a recording made at the chapter of the open book and the subject is Spotlight number two. Last time I spoke to you, I introduced this thought that we would take spotlight studies. So long as they were within the pages, covers of the book, we are not sure any time whether it will be in Genesis or Revelation or any book in between. Now, last time, we concentrated our attention on Romans, the 8th chapter, and the burden of our subject was rather the fact that every division in that chapter emphasises the word son. Either God sent his son, he spared not his son, or it gives you the other word, adoption, which means to place 
in the family the dignity of a firstborn son. And I had a feeling that the spotlight would focus our attention this evening on the first section of Romans 8, where it speaks about no condemnation. But one of the things about a spotlight is you never know where it's going to stop. So here we are. We're not going to look at Romans 8, the first few verses. So the spotlight has focused our attention this evening on the whole epistle. Oh, you say, here we go again, the whole epistle. Well, I don't think you will be burdened too much just to see the book as a whole. It is so useful if we can get an idea of the way in which the book is constructed because then any individual verse or text will have a a sort of a positive place in the scheme of things. Whereas if we don't know where we are going, you won't be quite sure when you stop at any one particular point of its interest and its purpose. Well now, all that I want to do is to ask you just to compare passage with passage without any elaboration. And this general outline of Romans follows a very simple pattern. It starts with one and it ends with the the other end. It goes with two and it ends with the second one end. Just like that. There's no dodging about, you needn't worry about A, B, C, D or anything like that. Now the first and the last balancing ones are Romans the first chapter and Romans the 16th chapter, verses 21 to 27. Now when we look at the first chapter, we find these features stand out strongly. It's stressing the gospel. This gospel is called the gospel of God, because God was the author. It's called the gospel of his Son, because there is no gospel that has no reference to the Son of God. If he'd remained in the glory, and never took upon himself the nature of man, we should have no mediator, we should have no saviour. And then it's called the gospel of Christ. Three times, you see, the gospel is brought before us. And we're told in uh, verse 2, that it had been promised before. And it was promised before by the prophets, his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Then, the final note for our comparison is in verse um, uh, 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So we've got now the gospel promised before and the obedience above all nations. Now will you turn then to the last chapter. The last chapter of Romans, chapter 16. And this time, verses 21 to 27. I won't read all the verses, but we come down to verse 25. Now, to him that is power to establish you according to my gospel. There's one thing that we shall have to think about sometime or the other. On two or three occasions, the apostle has said, my gospel. And we may have to say, well, it's worth considering why he should make that claim. For the moment, we just notice it. Now, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. Now here we have a mystery. Not the mystery of Ephesians, that wasn't known. But a mystery is in view. 
So, once more, you see, we've got over against the gospel, we've got a mystery. And this says, the revelation of a mystery which was kept secret since the world began. The mystery of Ephesians goes back before the foundation of the world, or this is since the world began, but is now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets. Now, there's a slight difference here. Instead of saying exactly the scriptures of the prophets, it's by uh, prophetic scriptures. And whether there's a, a need for us to be careful or not is not quite certain for the moment. But in chapter 1, it's most definitely referring to the Old Testament. In chapter 16, it may be that the words are altered a little because this mystery is revealed by prophetic writings. And there were those who had the gift of prophecy as the Apostle Paul himself had in the early days. But for the moment, we notice two things. It begins with a gospel promised before and it was for obedience of faith to all nations. Is that also included here? I think it is. Verse 26. But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the God of the ages or the Ionian God it's to do with a purpose made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Well, in the first chapter obedience of faith. Last chapter. The first one, the gospel. The last one, a mystery. Now, without being able to prove it this evening, I believe this mystery is referred to the centre part of Romans. Because the bulk of the Old Testament starts with Abraham. Oh, I know it starts with Adam. But the period of time covered between Adam and Abraham is given just about 11 chapters. And all the rest of the Old Testament, right up to Matthew, occupies the same amount of time in years. The whole Bible, practically, is starting from Abraham. And unless you had some teaching, you would never quite understand or realise what the Apostle has revealed. He's the only one who has a doctrine of Adam in the New Testament. You don't find it anywhere else. But in 1 Corinthians, as Paul, it's the, the first man, the second man, the first Adam, the last Adam, and there he says, I show you a mystery in 1 Corinthians. And then we have the emphasis in Romans, the fifth chapter, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. You see, most of the Bible, the bulk of the Bible, has to do with sins and the law at Mount Sinai and then the sins of the Gentiles in their ignorance. But here we are dealing with something deeper. This is the mystery, the secret. That it all goes back to one man who involved all his posterity. But it also emphasises that only one saviour is needed for all who sin. It cuts both ways. But if I stop too long on any one of these parallels, we shan't just get through and the spotlight may move and we shall lose some benefit possibly. So shall we come back to the earlier chapters? Chapter 1 to 3. And I think you would agree with me, especially when we get to chapter 3, or when the question is asked, um, are we better than they? Or the Apostle says, in no wise. 
uh, in chapter 3 they said, what advantage is there to be a Jew if what you say is true? Oh, he says, much every way. But he said, because you have a dispensational advantage, it doesn't follow you're better than anybody else. So, he said, oh, I'll agree with you, you have an advantage. But if you're going to say, therefore we are better, he says, you're not. For your very scriptures, not dealing with a Gentile, but dealing with you, gives you a long list. He says, it is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that was written not about Gentiles, but about Israel. And he goes right the way down until we read verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So here we have um, both Jews and Gentiles guilty before God. You see the word comes in the end of verse 19. That every mouth may be stopped, that is to say in the law court, and all the world brought in guilty before God. Well now, what's the balance to that? Chapter 15, verse 8 onwards. Here we have the sequel. Chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And again he says, uh, in verse 10, Re- Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. And again, Isaiah said, about the rod of Jesse. And so we have an emphasis here upon the word, the fact that these people, the Gentiles together with the Jews, are acceptable before God. So that's 15 until we get right down to the bulk of the 16th chapter. You see, they raised the, the question of acceptance in the early uh, chapter 14, and it's taken up here in chapter 15. So now we've got, first of all, going back to the beginning, the gospel promised before, obedience to nations, and the mystery, whatever that might turn out to be, that also addressed to the nations. That's the beginning and the end of the book. Then we have the Jew and Gentile, guilty before God. And then we have Gentile and Jew, acceptable before God. For that's what we read in this uh, section, that these very Gentiles who were once far off are now made acceptable and have their place because their acceptance is in Christ. Shall we look now again at chapter 3, verse 21 to 30? I overlapped it just now, rather. Chapter 3, 21. Here we read that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They were aliens, they were strangers, they had sinned, and they'd come short of the glory of God. What's the sequel to that? Will you look at 14 and 15, which is the echo. Chapter 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not for doubtful disputations. Receive him, 
And he goes on further to say that in this chapter 15 down to 7, verse 7, Therefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So I think you see in the first part they come short of the glory of God. In the echo they are received to the glory of God. So it's emphasising that the gospel and salvation is a means to an end. All salvation is wonderful itself. But the gift of eternal life is to put you somewhere, give you some position, open up some wonderful experiences, and so the two go together. Well now let's look again in uh, chapter 4, balancing chapter 12 and 13. Here we have the example of Abraham, justification by faith without works. But in the um, conclusion of this chapter 4, verse 18, he says this, who again, oh no, verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him who be believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, and so on. So here we have, first of all, the fact that it was only resurrection power that could make Abraham the father of the faithful. But he had to consider the fact that his body was as good as dead, apart from the resurrection power of the Lord. And then later on in this same epistle to the Romans, we read that we that this mortal body in Romans 8 is quickened. This mortal body. So we mustn't dwell only on the fact that we are dead and helpless and hopeless. Oh, God says yes, but don't forget he's put at our disposal the power that raised Christ from the dead. So, what's the sequel to this? This body now dead. Chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, now you see, all the sacrifices so far as the Lord Moses was concerned were slain and put to death. So there's a real departure here and an emphasis. Now, is this accidental? that we have in balance, he considered his own body now dead. And the Apostle, before he leaves this writing, he says, there's another aspect of that. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he goes on to say, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or logical, not fanatical, reasonable, logical service. So, just to go back again, the gospel at the beginning, a mystery in connection with that gospel at the very end, both emphasising it for the obedience of faith among all nations. Then we have Jew and Gentile equally guilty before God, balanced by the fact that Gentiles and Jews are equally accepted with God. 
because of this work of Christ. Then we have all have sinned and come short to the glory of God and yet receive them to the glory of God. So these little words are done that seem to be there on purpose to give us the pattern right through this book. Now we've looked at his own body, now dead, in contrast to presenting your body's living sacrifices. So you see, although we may say to ourselves we're just like Abraham, we are just like Abraham in the sense that we are utterly unable and incapable of accomplishing anything in connection with spiritual work, for we are good as dead. Abraham didn't stop there. He believed God that quickeneth the dead, it says. And so here we have, it's your reasonable service, if that is the case, to present your body's living sacrifice. Now we come to the centre of Romans, chapter 5. Chapter 5. Here we have verses 1 to 11. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads right on until you come to chapter, verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You notice in verse 10 there's the word reconciled. And the word translated atonement is the word reconciliation. We have ceased to use the word that was current in Shakespeare's day. We don't use the verb to at one anybody. People would look at you and wonder what you meant. But I've given you a series of passages I know at other times where in Shakespeare he says, I go to make atonement between his brother and the Duke of Gloucester. Well, he wasn't going to offer a sacrifice. He was going to reconcile. There was a quarrel. And to at one is reconciliation. Because it's absolutely untrue. We have never received the atonement that was offered to God. We receive the results of the atonement, which is reconciliation. So, here we have now the emphasis upon reconciliation in its doctrinal setting. But we come to this question of reconciliation again in chapter 9 to 11. Now chapter 9 to 11 is strongly dispensational in its character. He speaks about the uh, figure of a, an olive tree. But the olive tree failing to produce fruit and a strange thing happening that the Gentiles were said to be wild olives graft into the true olive tree to provoke them to emulation. Now, I, I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating in case anyone should not know. I go right back to earlier days in my experience when I took a course of study at Chelmsford Horticultural College and I actually used the letters FRHS, but I don't use them today. I don't like work like that, you see, friends. But in the course of those lectures, it was remarked by the lecturer that a local, rather famous grower had a curious experience. They'd had a row of pear, pear trees which came out in full blossom but never bore a single fruit. Then one day, 
one of the gardeners, by some mistake, graft into one of these pear trees a wild graft. Now that's contrary to nature. If you know anything at all about grafting, you put the choice rose into the strong briar. And so, he did something contrary to nature. And to their surprise, that tree bore fruit. Well now, I stood up in that uh, lecture room and I trailed my coat. I knew that they didn't believe the scriptures before what I'd spoken to them. I said, if you knew the epistle to the Romans and the reference to olive culture, you'd see that that was already understood in the days of the Apostle Paul. Of course, there was a guffaw. But you see, there is a book still that's extant that was published just before Paul wrote this epistle on olive culture. Of course, it was written in Greek, and it's, uh, it's not on sale, but it's to be uh, read if you know where it's still set. I've only had extracts from it. And there he says, that an olive grows old and rugged and ceases to bear. Some of the olive trees that I saw when I was in Majorca, well, they've got, they've got gaps almost as wide as these whole pews, I was thinking, the way that this thing had spread and grown. So tremendously old. It's as if they take a wild olive and graft in, it somehow stimulates that tree and provokes it to start all over again, and they get fruit. So that's what the Apostle said. He said, you Gentiles have not been put in because the time of the Gentiles' full blessing has come. You've been saved and given these blessings to provoke Israel to jealousy. But if they will not be provoked, then they go out into their darkness and a new dispensation will come in. So here we have this reference to reconciliation in um, the verses, um, where is that now? Verse 15. He speaks about Israel. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So we have reconciliation in chapter 5, got doctrinal, balanced by reconciliation in chapter 11, dispensational. So you see, it's, it's marching together, isn't it, as we take these passages one by one. Well, that brings us to the centre itself, chapter 5, 12, balanced by chapter 8. Now, chapter 5 starts the inner section of Romans, and it ceases to deal with sins, so many different transgressions, and it goes to the root sin, which is a different thing. And here we have in this 12, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And we get the reign of sin and death. Verse 17. For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. There's a balance. Verse 21. Of verse 20 and 21, Moreover the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did superabound. But as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You notice the emphasis on reigning. This is the dominion of sin. 
This isn't the fact of doing this or doing that or thinking this or thinking that. You're under a dominion. A dominion from which you cannot extricate yourself. But blessed be God, if one man involved the race in sin and death, one man, the one who took upon himself the likeness of men, as we read in Romans 8, that one man cancels that dominion, sets the prisoner free, gives him a new life. So there's the balance. This is the inner portion of Romans and largely referred to by the mystery in connection with the gospel that ends the chapter 16 that we were looking at in passing. Now then, it says here, verse 6, what shall we say then? And you will find in 6 and 7, four different times where there's a, an objection. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Shall we do this or the other? God forbid. And he gets right through and he says in verse, in chapter 8, now, having settled those four possible problems, chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So he said, here in Romans 5, by one man, sin came in. And letting him speak for himself, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ should all be made alive. The question of the all doesn't mean to say that there is no possibility of any person uh, losing salvation. It simply says, as sure as you're in Adam, you must die. But as sure as you're in Christ, you will be made alive. But everyone in his own order, Christ the first fruits, they that are Christ at his coming. So now we have then, in Adam, condemnation, stressed. Verse 16, condemnation. But in Romans 8, he picks it up and says, there is no condemnation. Oh, why? I think I drew your attention that the best Greek manuscripts leave out the words at the end of verse 1, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. You'll find them again at the end of verse 4. And it looks as though the eye of the person who was copying just looked at that and if ever you've done a lot of copying, you'll get very weary and you put down all sorts of strange things unless you watch yourself. And there are instances in the New Testament where that has been done. The copyist has either omitted something or put it down twice or looked at the wrong verse. So that I'm not tink tinkering with scripture, I'm only saying the consensus of opinion of those who uh, examine the Greek manuscripts is that it stands like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't depend on whether you walk after the flesh or after the spirit. That's not to do with it. You're not free from condemnation by your conduct. You're free from condemnation because God sent his Son. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Here we get it, see, Romans 5. Death by sin, sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Outside Romans 5 and 8, 
The law is the law of Mount Sinai. Inside Romans 5 to 8, it's the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life. Keep those well in your mind. For what the law could not do is that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So there is the sequel. After you're free from condemnation, after you're saved, after you have this witness of the spirit of Christ, then you walk in harmony. So, I hope it hasn't been too straggly, this spotlight on the whole of the epistle. Just finally, just quickly, the first and the last, we have the gospel, balanced by the mystery. Then chapter 3 and 15, we have Jew and Gentile guilty, and Gentile and Jew accepted. Then we have, we come short to the glory of God, balanced by receive them to the glory of God. Abraham looking at his own body now dead but emphasizing resurrection. Present your body's living sacrifices. Reconciliation doctrinal. Reconciliation chapter 11 dispensational and central. There is therefore now with all that now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Well I cannot tell you of course beforehand where the spotlight will rest, it's the very character of a spotlight to give you a surprise. So we won't anticipate, but when I have the opportunity again of ministering the word in this place, I hope to have another spotlight study which will, I trust, illuminate the scriptures in some form or another that it will be well worth the time spent and the uh, opportunity has been used to his glory.